Father in heaven, we are thankful for a, another day of camp meeting, the privilege and opportunity we have across this campus to study together, to learn of your word, to have your Holy Spirit guiding and teaching us. Lord, the truths that we possess as a people, we do not nearly appreciate as we should. And I pray that this week would be a means, not just through this seminar, but through all of the different various uh, opportunities we have of learning and reading and getting books and materials. It would be a means of stirring the truth in our hearts so that we could be like uh, Jeremiah, who said his word was unto me a burning fire in my bones, and I just couldn't keep it in. Father, now bless us in this uh, time we have together, for we ask it in pre- and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask somebody if they would take and uh, two somebodies. Two some, well, one somebody. I'm going to point Jack Stevenson, because I always do. And then I need one other somebody who can pass out. That'd be great. So if you can distribute those... I better take one of these. Jack goes to my church, and I keep telling him that, that he's no longer a youth. He needs to step up, and he can do some stuff for the Lord. And so little holy nudging never hurt anybody. Although, I don't know if he always appreciates it, but he's, he does a good job with everything I've asked him to do. So I'm going to talk to you today going into this topic. I, I, I want to lead into it. Some of you may have heard my background, but, and I shared a little bit in this morning's seminar, my mother and father uh, were first-generation Seventh-day Adventists. There were some friends of the family, a young couple who studied with my mom and dad. We did not have Adventist background, and they decided to become Seventh-day Adventists. My mom and dad ended up getting divorced, and... Um, Staying in the church for a while, I lived with my mom, but in the late 1970s, early 19, it was the early 1980s for us, uh, there was a theologian, an Australian theologian in the Adventist church named Desmond Ford, who ended up taking issues with some of our key doctrines, namely the sanctuary and the spirit of prophecy. You have to understand something. Anytime somebody takes an issue with an Adventist doctrine, spirit of prophecy, is always going to fall in there. <laughs> because all of the doctrines we hold to are supported by Ellen White. Notice that they're supported by, they're scriptural. It's not that they're Ellen White doctrines and we support them from the Bible. It's the other way around. You're going to see that today. So, obviously, if, if there's something that a person wants to get around and Ellen White's there saying, well, no, this is, this is the scriptural position, you've got to get around that as well. So, at any rate... Those were two of the contentions. There were more than that, but with Desmond Ford's uh, movement, my parents got, got caught up into that and ended up leaving the Adventist church. And so my family was out of the, the church for many, many years. And in fact, I was in my mid-twenties when the Lord, through some really amazing, miraculous circumstances, brought me back to the faith and it wasn't immediately like Adventist. I, I, when I, at first, I just, this is the first time I'd ever really given my heart to, to the Lord. And so I began looking at different churches. But as I studied, I studied my, my way into the Seventh-day Adventist church, which I'll touch on in a minute. Yes? Um, yes. Yes. No, that was, it wasn't a cause of the divorce. It was my mother and, and my stepfather sometime after the divorce. 
and they ended up leaving the church. My dad stayed in the church, but my, my mom, who I lived with, and my stepfather had left the church. And so I spent, and, and it's ironic to me, because a lot of people, you know, Ford's whole push, and even to this day, I have to tell you that the teaching of Desmond Ford is still alive and well in the Adventist church in different pockets. I mean, you're not, and, and, and just so, not as to, so as not to alarm you, every church has pockets of things in it. You know, in other words, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, you always got people with ideologies. It's not in what we believe as a church officially, but they're, you know, if you've, if you've been around at all, you can travel around North America and go to five different Adventist churches and meet, meet five different kinds of Seventh-day Adventists that all believe something different. And I wish I didn't have to say that, but I'm not going to pretend I don't have to say it. I'm not going to just pretend and, and, and then have you learn it by surprise if you don't know it yet. The only point that that should convey to you is you've got to know what you believe from the Bible for yourself, which is why we're doing this seminar. And that was a position I, I found myself in as a young man trying to come back in. Where do I go? I've got to know what the Word says and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I should actually... Jack, where'd the other... They're all here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to leave them on either side. So... You can direct somebody if they come in and they don't have a handout. I'll put them on the sides here. Sorry, Gerhard. He's trying to video this and ask me if I'd be moving around much, and here I am just spanning the room. Um, so back to what I was saying. Um, so we, my, my, my parents had left the Adventist faith, and when I came back in, you got to understand that one of my big questions in investigating the Adventist Church was Ellen White. Because I didn't, you know, some of you, I don't know how many of you here, if, and some of you here are not yet in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and it may be a thing that's like, you ever heard about this Ellen White? I'm not sure. You may not be sure. I was sure. I was sure she was a false prophet. We already figured that out. So that was kind of a thing, a hurdle I had to get past. And that hurdle led me to probably a more intense study than I normally would have done on the topic of the gift of prophecy. And that has given birth to a lot of what I'm going to share with you today. Now, I will say that when I, when I came back into the Seventh-day Adventist church, after going to different churches and studying around, there was not the World Wide Web. And now, if you get on the internet and type in Ellen White, well, you get all kinds of craziness. I'm just going to tell you all kinds of... When I say craziness, I just mean stuff that's just blatantly false. Just blatantly false. It's frustrating because you, you, you can't necessarily... You know people are getting on there and they're getting fed this stuff and you can only have the opportunity to talk to them about it if they invite that opportunity. I've had people I've studied with and they get on the internet and, oh, if I only had an opportunity to answer their questions, just ask me the questions. Oh, no. I've had people say, oh, no, no, no. The people on the internet told me not to talk to any Adventist. Like, seriously? Listen, let me tell you something. When you get to a point where you're afraid to investigate your faith with somebody, you're in a bad place. When you can't talk to somebody because... That's great. I mean, if I'm a false prophet, that's fantastic if I can get a person to listen to only me and my group of thinking, you know, people who think like me. So it's a little frustrating when somebody comes across something and then you don't even have the opportunity to at least try to give an answer. They heard some crazy thing on the Internet, and I mean... Some of the stuff I hear, the answers, it's very easy to refute what something was said. But I, I didn't have those hurdles to come into then. Um, 
I can't say I didn't. They weren't through the internet, but they still had circulated. For those of you who know anything about the, the Ford movement, it actually made national news. It was in Newsweek, it was in Time Magazine. I have the clippings of all this. In fact, in my own investigation, I went to the library. In those days, it was, everything was on microfiche. You remember that? And I looked up this history, articles in Christianity Today, articles in Time Magazine, articles in Newsweek Magazine, calling this church that I was thinking about being a part of a cult. And I went through and I combed through that and I read through all this material. That's just to say that that's kind of what drove me into the study um, and the passion I've had for this particular topic on the gift of prophecy, which is a very plainly and gloriously biblical topic. One of the turning points for me was that as much as my parents had left the church with the Ford movement and Ellen White and the allegations of false prophet and all of that, and, and listen, here's another thing. <laughs> as with all Bible prophets, Ellen White has a number of things that she writes about what you shouldn't do. <laughs> and for a young man in his mid-20s, it doesn't take a lot of convincing to dismiss somebody who tells you you can't do something, right? Hey, you're not allowed to do this. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. Don't listen to that person. Okay. <laughs> so that wasn't hard. So, you know, in fact, the church I began to attend had its own issues with, with Ellen White. And so, in my mind, even as I began to attend, initially I thought, I'm, not, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to get into that stuff. Not interested in knowing anything about Ellen White and the gift of prophecy. But I had a weak spot, and the Lord knew the weak spot. You know, the devil knows weak spots, but there was a weak spot the Lord knew. And that weak spot was, I was very curious about prophecy. What does the future hold? You know, here I am in my mid-20s, and I, and I thought crazy things were happening then. And I was very curious about what the future held. And one of those dear saints in the church I attended said to me, you know, I, there's this amazing book where Ellen White saw what would happen in the future, and it's called Early Writings. And she said, you ought to read that book. And as much of an aversion as I had to reading anything by Ellen White, I was so curious about prophecy. You know the old saying about curiosity in the cat, right? Well, it, 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 it got me too. And I, so I began to read, and I, ha I have since learned that a lot of the people who have problems with Ellen White simply don't read much of Ellen White. When you start reading it, and I'll tell you, there's a, how many of you know what the testimonies for the church are? Okay, Ellen White wrote a series of, of, of testimonies from her accounts for, for the church and as a, you know, in her role, things that God communicated to her to communicate to the church. And one of our supporting ministries in the Adventist Church, Remnant Publications, went through a project where they had those testimonies put on audio. And the um, owner of that company, the president of that company, if that's his official title, I forget, president, director, whatever he called himself, Dwight Hall, I was pastoring his church at the time. They, you know, when, you get, when you're making an audio of something, you hire a voice professional. You don't just like, hey, somebody in the church, you want to read a book for me? Well, sometimes people do that, you know, but he wanted to do it professionally. And so he hired a voice professional, obviously non-Seventh-day Adventist, to read Ellen White's testimonies. 
He said the lady he hired, she was halfway through the first book of the testimony, and she's like, this person's inspired by God. And I can tell you story after story after story of people who have had that same encounter. In fact, I'll get into, I, I, I have to share one that's one of my favorite stories, and I'm just thinking about it. Like, I didn't bring the notes for it with me. Um, I can probably access them during a break. How many of you have heard accusations about Ellen White plagiarizing stuff? Okay, it is a, it's a very old one, and it's been dealt with again and again. So Ironically, it's so old, and the church has in, in dealt with it. I wanted to say in official capacity, but it was unofficial, and there's a reason for that, which I'll get to a little bit later. But the church has dealt with it, but to this day... I get on these anti-Ellen White, anti-Avenist websites, and they're like, Ellen White's a plagiarist, and the church never said anything about it. They never dealt with it. And I'm thinking, oh, for crying out loud, if people only knew. What happened is the leaders in the church actually hired an outside non-Avenist law firm just so people couldn't say, well, yeah, of course, it was one of your own attorneys. What would you expect? Paid the money from private funds so somebody could say, well, you, your church paid for it. What do you expect? No, no, no it was a private group of Seventh-day Adventists said, we're going to get this thing solved. They hired a company that specialized, a law firm that specialized in piracy, copyright infringement, this kind of thing. And the attorney that got the case was a man named Vincent Ramick, and Ramick was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> I have to understand that from a standpoint of Seventh-day Adventism and Ellen White's books, now this, this guy, because he was investigating these claims about her writings, he had to read through a cross-section of a lot of her stuff and compare it with things. And by his own admission, the only thing he read cover to cover was a book called The Great Controversy. How many of you know The Great Controversy? That book makes, it in no mistaken terms, spells out the papacy, the Catholic Church, as the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy. So you're understanding, Roman Catholic man, only book he's read all the way through. So if you're going to be biased, and in fact, in his own words, he says, you know, when I went into this case, I have to tell you, I was biased against her. I thought for sure, but he was supposed to be defending. And I'll tell you the rest of what he says afterwards. Fascinating. I mean, we'll do it today. We'll do it today. But it's, it's um, I, I, I want to tell you that the dragon is enraged with the church who keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about. The testimony of Jesus, what the Bible really says about the testimony of Jesus. I don't remember if I prayed, so I'm going to pray. You ever do that? It's like, did we pray? You know, if you don't remember it, just do it again. It's almost like, are we allowed to do it twice? Let's do it, shall we? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do want to ask your Holy Spirit now to guide us as we open your word together and we seek to have a clearer understanding of this topic. Lord, hear us and answer. Send your spirit of truth to lead us into truth. For we'd ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I just remembered we did pray. Now we prayed twice, so I feel really good about it. I want you to take, did you get the page that says 4A, what the Bible really says about the testimony of Jesus? Do you have that? Okay. So let's start in Revelation 19. I'll look at the question, but I, I, I want to do a little more here in Revelation 19 for just a moment. Uh, not Revelation 19, Revelation 12, sorry. We'll get to Revelation 19, but Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 is where we want to start. I've got them there, they're in a reverse order. It 
Now, Revelation 12, 17, in the event that you haven't studied it, is the chapter for the great controversy. It starts with the war in heaven. This is where we get one of the places where we get the behind the scenes, where there was a war not on earth, but in heaven. And the dragon, which it identifies as the devil and Satan, right there in the chapter, was fighting against Michael and his angels, and he and his angels were cast down to the earth. And the Bible follows the progress of uh, Satan's attacks against God's church all the way through the ages to the end of time. That's what Revelation 12 is. And this isn't a study on Revelation 12, per se. But as we go, for example, um, Revelation 12, verse 6 says, Then the woman, which is speaking about the church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. How long? 1,260 days. Now, if you go ahead and look at verse 13... And 14, it says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So we're picking up again from where we were earlier. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly where? Into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Hold your finger there and look back at 6 again and notice that they're the same verse. Virtually. Verse 6 says, The woman fled into the where? Wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. 1,260 years or days. You come to verse 14, there was a woman and she flew into the wilderness, into her place, all the, the where she is nourished or fed. Only here it says for a time, times, and half a time. And this is a great verse because in this passage, it gives us a clue, if you've ever done the study, to know what the time, times, and half a time or the 1,260 days is. And without going into the big prophetic study, those are both referring to that same time period of papal supremacy in the Dark Ages. From 538, when the papacy received its power and church and state were united, to 1798, where the Pope was captured in Italy and the power appeared to have been broken for the papacy. It's spanning that whole, that whole period of time. And again, this isn't our class on that. It's review for some of you. For others of you, it's something you'll want to study into. But the point is that the Bible's taking us from the point in verse 5 of Revelation 12, where it says, The woman bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. That's referring to Christ. So you've got the birth of Christ, you've got the Christian church, and then the Bible's just following us all the way down through the ages. When would you say it would apply when it says that the woman or the church went into the wilderness? Do you know anything about church history? What would that apply to? The Dark Ages. Why would the church be called, said to be in the wilderness? Well, and you see the persecution in the chapter, don't you? So she had to go into hiding. And if you've read anything about the Reformation time period, faithful believers in the Word of God had to hide or be killed, which many of them were killed, persecuted in various different ways. Some of them were run off. Some of them were killed like wild animals. Some of them were, were beheaded. Some of them were any number of things. And so they went into hiding. And the devil pursued. This is what all of this is about. In all through the ages... It's been the devil's purpose to extinguish the church in one of two ways. The first is persecution, but that's not the only way, is it? 
How much persecution do we see, see in the Christian church in North America? None. Really none. Why? In the book Great Controversy, it says, Why does persecution seek, seem to slumber? Because God's people have lost their distinctiveness. We've become more like the world, and we don't stir up the world because we're like them. In many ways, it's a Laodicean condition. So, so you've got the devil trying to extinguish the church from the beginning. He's always trying to dis- extinguish the church. He's either going to try to persecute you, or he's just going to get you to try to give in and go with the flow. And so we see this come all the way down to the end of time. Revelation 12 takes us. And to this very day, the devil's still trying to extinguish the church. Has he been successful? You're here. Amen? Amen? Has he had his successes? Sure he has, but has he extinguished the Christian faith? No, because God has his people and will always have his people. And so that's where Revelation 12 takes us all the way down to the end of time. And you're looking, there's still those who stay faithful to God. In every age, he's going to have his faithful people. In every age, he will. And at the end of time, we come to verse... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> she gave three different things. There's all kinds of reasons, but it, 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 the, the, we're just complacent. You know, I, I have to say that in this day and age, this is my own observation, so you can disagree with it if you want, but I think our church is too passive, and I think our preaching is too passive, and we're always worried about whether our people know that they're loved, know that God loves them, know that... And look, folks, I'm going to tell you that our problem is not that by nature we're so disciplined and faithful. It's just not the reality. The problem is fallen human beings tend to be procrastinators. There may be exceptions to that, but I'm not seeing that people across the board in the church are just chomping at the bit. And I'll tell you what really reveals it probably more than anything, and that is our desire to witness. I've been working in soul winning and evangelism. I can tell you Seventh-day Adventists love to come to seminars, but if I did an outreach, we even announced it and said, hey, we're going to meet on campus. We're going to go out and knock on doors in the community. We would have a few, a handful, on an entire campus of people. And it might be different here because you're camp meeting folks. But I'm just saying we don't tend towards diligence in, in spiritual things. We don't tend that way. We've got a struggle. There's that internal struggle. The scripture talks about where the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Sabbath afternoon, I'm not chomping at the bit to go on outreach. And I can say, whoa, now, hold on, man. I'm, chom- I'm, I'm, I'm the one sitting in the easy chair thinking, do I have to go out today? I mean, really, it's cold. Am I the only one? Or do you relate to that? And I think that's a lot of it. We're easy. We're sitting ducks for the devil. The thing is, when the church... The devil doesn't like to resort to persecution because persecution wakes people up. That's the last resort of the enemy. If he can get you, you know, to just snooze your way through, he's happy with that. Life is easy. Life is good. We have good things. It's kind of, you know, we may not have the best, but whatever. You know, just smooth sailing is his, that's his choice. Persecution wakes people up, whether it's happening to us or we see it happen. If we saw persecution happening right now in, in a North America like it happens other places in the world, even if it wasn't happening to you, you would be bolt straight, sit, you know, bolt up in your chair and be like, wow, what's going on here? But the devil uses a multiple of different avenues to try to lull the church to sleep. 
or persecute the church. His goal is to extinguish the faith. My point is, and the important point is, he has never been able to do it. And I say hallelujah to that. And so Revelation 12 is tracing this all out, incidentally, before it happened. I'm talking about history now. This wasn't history. This was all written before it happened. And God wrote Revelation in code because he knew that there were people, if they could figure it out, they would have extinguished it a long time ago. But he's had it here on record. And we come down to the end of time. And when we get down to the end of time, the Bible tells us, as we're tracing this situation with a woman, in verse 15, it says, The serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away with the flood. I see that taking place two ways. Water in prophecy represents multitudes of people. And there have been multitudes of people that have persecuted the church, but there are also multitudes of crowds of people that the church has gotten mingled with. Um, what does it say? Is it, is it Proverbs 23, verse 2? Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Multitudes are there. Hey, but everybody else is doing it. So here's the multitude, the, the flood that comes out to get rid of the woman. But the Bible says, verse 16, But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, I believe that's answered, clarified, in the next chapter. Because in Revelation 13, 11, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And if you did study in prophecy, that beast coming up out of the earth was the United States of America, a land of religious freedom that helped the people escape the persecution that was happening. That's what America was about. It wasn't escaping taxation without representation. I wish our history books had had the whole story on that. But that's what it was about. And so the Bible's just taking us through. God raised up there, here at the end of time a, a free land, but there was going to be problems in that free land, which we get into in Revelation 13. And then you come to verse 17, and it says, And the dragon, and the Bible identifies, we didn't read it, in verse 9, it says, The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So you don't have to scratch your head and say, Who's the dragon? It's right there. It tells us right there who he is. We see what he's been, been doing. We come down to the last verse, and it says, The dragon was enraged with the woman, representing God's church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, there's a couple things I want you to note here. First of all, the Bible says the dragon is enraged. And it tells us specifically what enrages him. What enrages him in this verse? Tell me what enrages Satan. Does keeping the commandments of God enrage Satan? Then why in the world does the Christian world fight against keeping the commandments of God? You ever think about that? Hmm, keeping the, I would think anything that enrages the devil would be a good thing for a Christian to do. You following that? But there's one other thing there that enrages him. The testimony of Jesus. What the Bible really says about the testimony of Jesus. This is what we're looking at. Now, if we take that phrase, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and we look over to Revelation 19 and verse 10. I want you to notice the, the imagery here, because we're going to pick it up again in another verse in just a minute. But in Revelation 19, verse 10, the Bible says, 
John is speaking of the angel, you'll see that, who was showing him the things he was seeing in this vision. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you what? Don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. All right, that's that term that we're looking at, the testimony of Jesus. That's what we saw over there in Revelation 12, 17. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the what? Spirit of prophecy. Now, Seventh-day Adventists have put those two verses together appropriately, I believe, because you're letting the Bible interpret itself. And here, John says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we've taken away from that 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 must mean that the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. It refers to the Holy Spirit, spiritual gift of prophecy, and that that, along with keeping the commandments, are going to be identifiable in the last day church. So question number one says, what gift is an identifying characteristic of God's last day church? Now let me explain identifying characteristic. If I told you to go to the airport, there's somebody coming in and I need you to pick them up. But you're not going to know who they are. And let's just say they don't have a sign, they don't have a phone, they can text you. So I've got to tell you how to spot them. Are you with me so far? What if I told you, listen, just go and look for the person wearing blue jeans and tennis shoes. That's not really good, is it? Like if you'd be like, okay, I appreciate your sincerity, but you're an idiot. That's not, if you're trying to give identifying characteristics, you've got to come up with something unique. God is not an idiot. When God gave identifying characteristics of his last day church, he picked things he knew were going to stand out. Okay? You go to the airport and there's a guy wearing a propeller beanie on his head. Ah, I can find that. There's not a whole lot of people like that in the airport. You understand what I'm saying? Something unique. Now, here's why I'm telling you this. You have to understand that the majority of anti-Ellen White, anti-Adventist sentiment on the Internet comes from former Seventh-day Adventists. It's kind of sad because people who aren't Adventists say, And I don't know why we fall for it, but people who aren't Adventists say, oh yeah, they used to be Adventists, so they know. Think it through with me. Let's say, how many of you are married here? I don't mean to do this to you, I hate to do this to you, but it's an illustration, illustration only. But let's just say you have a nasty divorce. Nasty divorce. You know, some couples are amicable in their divorce. Nasty divorce, terrible things, saying terrible things about it, or at least... Your husband or wife says terrible things about you, right? And you're divorced, and now somebody needs a character reference for you. Who are you going to send them to? Are you going to send them to your ex? Well, they lived with you. They would know the best, wouldn't they? Why wouldn't you do it? Eh, they may have an axe to grind, right? Listen to me. Don't. Oh, that person used to be in the Adventist church. Used to be is the key word. In the Adventist church. They ought to know. Now, they have an axe to grind is what they ought to have. And they generally do. And that's what I have found in a lot of these. I'm not, I'm not forbidding you to, to read them. I'm just saying, consider the source, okay? So a lot of these guys are former Seventh-day Adventists. And, and one of them that I've, well, the argument is passed around with a number of them. In this particular passage, 
As I said, Adventists typically put those two texts together. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So I came across an article on one of these, from one of these people. It wasn't on their site. It was in a magazine they published. And they said, well, you've got to understand testimony of Jesus doesn't mean what Seventh-day Adventists say it means. Because, see, in the Greek, if you read the Greek, now I'm going to tell you right away that, that I'm all for going back to the languages and understanding some things, but I'll tell you there are a lot of people that use the languages to confuse you so they can push their agenda. It's like, oh, you don't know this, do you? I'm a scholar in it, so just take my word for it. That's kind of what it is. There's a reason, and, and, and let's just be real clear about something. I could go, to, I'll just name Andrews University, and I'm not picking on Andrews, I'm just the seminary, or, or, or a group of scholars. Their entire seminary isn't as big as the group of scholars that translated this into English. You understand what I'm saying? I've, I've had encounters with, and there are good scholars, and there are bad scholars, and there are in-between scholars, and I'm not trying to trash scholars, my point is, there's still people, there's still men or women that are scholars, and I appreciate their scholarship, but, you know, some, and I, so I've had scholars say, yeah, but the Greek means this, and it always means this. Well, if it always means that, why did the entire hundred people that translated the original text come up with this word? And I'm not saying that the entire group was always, but God has preserved the integrity of his word. The point is, the word has always been the standard. You're never going to be unsafe following the word. The Dark Ages was, was built up by convincing the people that you can't understand this yourself. Of course, it wasn't in the language of the people, but they didn't allow it to be put in the language of the common people because as common people, you're not scholars and you won't understand it and you'll interpret it wrongly. Only the priests know how to interpret it correctly. I mean, that was... <laughs> Do you get the idea of that? If only I could just speak, hey, look, none of you can understand this right unless I tell you what it means. Where does that put me? I mean, <laughs> you're in the palm of my hand. I'll take you anywhere because I can tell you and you've just got to go with what I say. That was never the intention of God. And I'm not... all scholar, We got some great scholars who... Help us to gain a better understanding. But you, you get my point there, don't you? So this guy goes and he refers to the Greek. And he said, well, here's the thing. If you read the Greek, you would understand that in Revelation 12, 17, the, the, word, the, the phrase of Jesus, it could be either subjective or objective. In other words, testimony of Jesus could be a testimony coming from Jesus. Or it could be a testimony about Jesus. Now, if we believe it's the gift of prophecy, that would be a testimony coming from Jesus through the prophet, right? That's what it would be, testimony of Jesus. And that's how we have read it as Adventists. Testimony of Jesus means Jesus is speaking through his prophet. It's the gift of prophecy. And we go to Revelation 19.10. But what some have done is they've said, no, 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 it's a testimony about Jesus. So the, the, the identifying characteristic of the last day church isn't the gift of prophecy, it's that the people have a testimony to say about what Jesus has done for them. Now, the truth of the matter is, the Greek can be read either way. The only way you can come to the conclusion is you've got to let Scripture context show you, which it does very plainly. I'll show you in a minute. But just entertaining the thought, okay, just entertaining the thought for a minute and saying, let's just say testimony of Jesus instead of referring to a testimony coming from Jesus through the prophets as a gift of prophecy. 
Let's just go with the idea that it's a testimony about Jesus. So here's how you find the church in the last days. It's people who talk about Jesus. Isn't that like going to the airport and finding the guy in blue jeans and tennis shoes? Yes or no? Look, God is not an idiot. When God gave identifying characteristics, he gave characteristics he knew would be unique in the last days. Now, I'll show you from Scripture in a minute. Question? Shouldn't they both be true? Sure. Except for, you don't typically read a thing both ways. Uh, Let me put it this way. How many of you have heard the term hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the theological word for interpretation, how you read something. You know what the goal of hermeneutics is? To understand what? Yes and no. Listen carefully. To understand what the original author meant. We assume that when an author wrote something, they actually meant to write something. For example, you may not understand what I'm writing, but you would assume that I wouldn't understand what I was writing. And if you didn't understand and I was around to ask, I can't go ask the Apostle Paul, but I'm around to ask, you could just come up and say, what did you mean when you said this, right? Because you're assuming that I meant something. So that's where I would say, Paul didn't just mean a bunch of things. John didn't just mean a bunch. He meant something. And our purpose in the study of Scripture is to find out what he meant. Now, it's not that difficult. I want you to look at Revelation 19 again. Now remember, Revelation 12, 17 just uses the term testimony of Jesus. So we go to Revelation 19, and notice Revelation 19 again, verse 10. Look at the imagery, because you're going to see it again. I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, what? Don't do it. I am your, what word does he use? Phrase, fellow servant and of your brethren. Who do what? Now let me ask very clearly. Who are the brethren? From the text, who are the brethren? They're the people who have the testimony of Jesus. Do you see that? You don't even need to know yet what the testimony of Jesus is. You just know that the brethren are the people who have the testimony of Jesus, right? From Scripture. Go to Revelation 22, 8 and 9. Now this is what's fascinating, is in this particular article I'm referring to, this gentleman goes through a number of texts in Scripture to disprove our interpretation, but there's a text he never goes to. And that's the one we're going to look at right now. And, you, and, and when we read it, you'll be like, how could you leave that one out? Intentionally. Revelation 22, verse 8. John says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I did what? I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, Don't do it, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets. Who were the brethren back in the last verse we looked at? They were the people who had the testimony of Jesus. Can you see this passage is saying the exact same thing, only instead of using the phrase, the testimony of Jesus, what phrase does it use? The prophets. Who are the brethren who have the testimony of Jesus? They're the prophets. What is the testimony of Jesus? It is the gift of prophecy or the spirit of prophecy, as it says in 1910. You follow that? Now, a person may disagree, but you're disagreeing with the plain, thus saith the Lord. So as Seventh-day Adventists, we stand on solid ground when we look at the... Now, I'm not into Ellen White yet. I'm just saying, if you're a Christian in the last days, and you're following what the Bible says, and you're looking for God's last-day church, there are two things you've got to find. Two unique things about that last-day church. They're going to believe in keeping the commandments of God, and they're going to have the spiritual gift of prophecy. 
So far, so good? All right, let's take a break.